0: Rise and shine, Mr. Freeman. Be careful of what you do. Big Brother is watching you. You say that you got me all in the I always feel like somebody's Rather than offer you the illusion of free choice, I will take the liberty of choosing for you.
1: Hello, everyone. This is the Hurricane Labs InfoSec podcast, episode 0.03, the But Wait, Where's the Log Jam logo? Except I liked Corey's idea a little bit better, the Leave it to Updates Beaver edition. So we're going to go with that. That was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was kind of terrible. Anyway, um, I'm your beloved marketing person, Kelsey Clark.
2: I am Tom Kupchak, uh, whatever I do here.
3: I'm Corey Ham. also whatever I do here.
1: And I'm
2: Amanda Berlin, ditto.
1: All right. So anyway, we've got some housekeeping announcements before we get started. We are hiring for Splunk consultants, Splunk and big data admins. You got to say
2: that right. Big, big data. data. Big data.
1: And network security operations analysts. So and who wouldn't want to work with me and Tom? Exactly, Tom and I. Can't
2: imagine who. That's so anyway, why. That's why we have the other two openings. Though. Actually, so I can so think
1: of a couple
4: people that if wouldn't you find, work. With if us. you find working <laughs> with me or
2: Amanda incredibly distasteful, apply for the
1: other two yes. positions. So apply for all of them now because you're awesome. Anyway, Ian has a new blog screencast tutorial. It's called Custom Error View in Splunk Part 1. It's a series listening for search events. And it's a tutorial that shows you a better way to handle the error alerts that come up in your Splunk dashboard. So basically it's... It's to the benefit of the user because it clearly displays the error message directly within the Splunk dashboard panel, so it makes it more obvious than the little pop-up that maybe they miss. So check that out. It's on our website.
2: Even better, don't have errors. But inevitably, there's going to be problems that run up, so listen to you. And I hate the thought of saying that. Is this
1: Splunk
3: on Splunk on Splunk?
1: Something like that, yes. Anyway, wanted to highlight that Amanda has been featured in CSO Online article. It's called, yeah, it's called Social Engineering. Even Shakespeare understood security's weakest link. Do you want to say anything about that, Amanda? I'm a big Shakespeare fan.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Do you feel that the link that they made between Social Engineering and Shakespeare had any real content in it? Or was it just title? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, no, not really. They both have to do with people. Thy thy server, thou
2: thus be secure.
3: (laughs) No, no, no. It's about (laughs) social engineering, My next
4: presentation
1: is going to be in all Latin. (laughs) So we'll keep you updated about Amanda's Latin presentation coming up. Yes. And lastly, make sure that you enter for the Splunk Aptitude App Contest. If I actually knew what I was doing, I might try. Yeah. So, it's like hundred <laughs> we, we
2: are participating in some of the judging, so you can't. Sorry. Oh.
1: But Matt said really? not to not to disclose that publicly. But whatever. Oh. So we'll just delete that part of the podcast. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I think it's probably fine. It's the
3: leak for real.
1: We're actually leaking internal Hurricane labs the leak. information. <laughs> Next up, what we use for passwords. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, we are involved in the judging, and uh, it should be pretty cool. Get some bragging rights and get some big money for your Big Data app. So, big Data app. <laughs> Tom, I say we need
4: We need a button to push every time Big Data or, or something.
1: I
3: can get the Inception button one second. Yes. all
2: right like the podcast drinking game every time you hear Big Data. That's what I was
1: thinking, but I didn't want to say it because I don't really want to talk about Bud Light this time. So. Okay. Ew. <laughs> Yeah. I know, it's okay. All right, moving on. So we're going to go into our InfoSec hacks and headlines hot off the press. Logjam. Can someone give us a little background description on what's going on? It doesn't have a
2: logo. No one
1: cares. Yeah, so we're sort of disappointed about that because all the other ones do.
3: Logjam is basically uh, another encryption flaw in which an attacker who has a man in the middle can downgrade a session to use a size of diffie Hellman key that is not sufficient to protect plain text
2: data. Could you tell our listeners what a Diffie-Hellman key is and how that is used in SSL?
3: Um, no, I can't because they would die of <laughs> boredom. <laughs> The basic idea is that you can downgrade a session and that's bad. You shouldn't be able to downgrade a session because we should all be using good key sizes that aren't easy to crack.
2: So the the way I understand that this works is you have... The server and the client will talk about trying to have a 2048 or a 1024-bit encryption key length. And then using Logjam, you'll be able to downgrade that to something that's more easily attacked, such as 512.
3: Yeah, Um, it's similar. There have been other session downgrade vulnerabilities. There was one that downgrades it to a 0-bit key. Uh, that was with a different open SSL vulnerability a few years ago. Essentially, you're t- you're using Man in the Middle to downgrade an SSL session, which can lead to disclosure of plain text data. But again, if someone has the preconditions necessary to perform this attack on you, then you have problems way bigger than your SSL sessions. So
2: super scary big shot pen test guy. What where, are there these preconditions? Where's? And, is, and no, why they, are these problems?
3: Well... <laughs> The preconditions necessary for this attack would be man in the middle or network local network access. In both of those cases, there are much more severe concerns. Like, for example, I can just redirect your SMB login to my machine and just get your plain text Windows credentials without having to use any exploits whatsoever. do so you think
4: at this point they're just nitpicking?
3: No. Well, I mean, the reason this is getting so much press is because the same reason that any new vulnerability gets press, and that's because everyone wants to get press. There is an implicit reason for everyone to report things like this sensationally. I think we all know that there have been many vulnerabilities in OpenSSL over the years and they've all been patched just fine without having logos or names needed. <laughs> so, they have
4: numbers and that's all we needed before. I
3: guess you could say that the reason why it's being sensationalized so heavily is because not only are they playing on the I guess you could say code of Heartbleed because if you say Heartbleed in your title then you're probably going to get lots of hashtags on Twitter and clicks and mentions and whatever else goes on but I guess now there's an increasing awareness of encryption and why it's good for users and why it's bad for the NSA and why it's important and so it just kind of I guess you could say it dovetails with that, and so it kind of goes with it, and it's reported evenly, even though it's not—it's not even close to being as bad as Heartbleed. Yeah, like
2: fundamentally, this is completely different than Heartbleed, yeah. and it's completely more difficult to exploit. Um, where Heartbleed was something you just—you could do you had from the internet. On the internet yeah. that you could just get to and cause information to be disclosed. This you actually have to have access into a network, uh, either through as a man in the middle attack or having, like Corey said, Redirect, yeah. network access.
3: Well, I think that I think that we probably somehow will see some exploitation in the wild, but it'll be very limited. Whereas Heartbleed was very widely distributed exploitation in the wild. I think a and kind lot of, of a people, big
4: deal that you could reproduce extremely easily.
3: A very big deal with easily accessible public exploits and. Sensitive information was almost guaranteed but in the case of web, dedicated web servers. What else is going to be sitting in memory other than good stuff? But I would say that this attack is... So you're
2: trying to say Heartbleed is a good argument for just doing random web browsing on your web servers.
3: No, I'm saying if you have web servers, people are probably logging into them. Well, sure. And when they To logging increase in, the
2: entropy in RAM... Oh, yeah. You just kind of... Mm-hmm. I would
3: highly recommend just running Prime95 on any web server. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> to kind of mitigate yeah <laughs> most of the information they'll get is just going to be nonsense that just goes back to the whole idea of memory and ram and sh- we should encrypt ram right
2: all that kind of stuff it and, just makes it hard to use your ram when it's encrypted. Yeah.
3: the point is end-to-end encryption you shouldn't allow your data to be in plain text and memory at all even though the web server has to decode the plain text or decode the encrypted data to be able to process it it shouldn't it should do that in a secure way i guess you could
1: say So ultimately, if some of our listeners are less tech savvy, like me, the impact of logjam is the loss of privacy during the exchange of sensitive information on secure channels. And it's not as prevalent as Heartbleed. It's not exploitable, really.
2: Yeah, it's a completely different type of attack. Heartbleed is basically something anyone could get information from a public server. Uh, This requires more advanced access.
3: It takes something that was once relatively secure and moves it to being not so secure as far as, you know, session layer encryption goes.
2: But it's not like just anyone who's using a web browser going to every site in the internet is going to just have all their passwords spit out everywhere. And that's the other
3: thing is that typically I bet most of the people who listen to this are probably clients or end users. And if you're an end user. And all my fans, don't forget. And all your (laughs) friends who are just these awesome sysadmins for Google. The the main thing is if you're a client, you could be exploited by Heartbleed. However, if you're a client, you probably, there's nothing you can do for this. You're not going to be exploited. Basically just update your browser whenever the newest patch comes out and you'll be fine. There's no, oh, they got my Facebook password because I went to Facebook while they were vulnerable to Heartbleed. It's just kind of a, if I was already hacked, now I'm hacked worse.
1: Sounds good. Anyway, moving on to the next topic. The NSA hijacking app stores to hack phones or it's called the Irritant Horn Project. I don't even know. These names are, I wish I was the people who came up with these names. The
3: NSA has publicly announced, I think that their project names are randomly generated. So that's why it makes (laughs) no sense. Good.
1: Okay. Good to know. They have an app that.
3: They have a better one, stuff. though, that sounds. It's for the government, so it's like it was built over the. So we courts. spent billions of dollars yes. coming up billions with Billions yeah. of tax. Right. Somebody has this yeah. position in the government. Billions of taxpayer dollars were used in the creation of that naming scheme. There's a committee.
2: Yeah, and, and there's a congressional hearings to make sure that the code name is acceptable. Oh, of course. Standards.
1: It's a secret congressional hearing, though. Yeah. yeah they, they don't do any drugs when they come up with those names, just so you know. Anyway, so back to the issue. What is it? <laughs>
3: Kelsey, Kelsey, give us a quick explanation of what this one is.
1: Oh, gosh. I don't know. They wanted to
3: backdoor <laughs> the App
1: Store, right? <laughs> yeah. Wait, why am I giving the explanation?
3: <laughs> okay. Tom, why don't you explain? This
2: The article is written NSA- by a guy named Corey, so you clearly know everything. Oh, about it was it. me. <laughs> All right, I already
3: know it. The NSA
2: didn't tell everybody
4: this on
3: purpose. This was
4: part of the documents leaked by Snowden. It what? was just.
3: I thought they had really transparent operations.
4: <laughs> <laughs> sure. That's what I've always thought as well. Um, they wanted to um, backdoor Google and Samsung app stores. To get data.
2: So basically it's like installing a Splunk Forward on everyone's phone that they yeah. wanted to collect information right. from and then forward that data.
3: So when they say backdooring the app store, do they mean get information about how people are using the app store, or are well, they saying like, backdoor? No, no, no. no, like actual said, get control. Like okay. this is
4: this is from the articles. Is these implants could gather data from the phone, including emails, text, browsing history, call logs, videos, and photos. Okay, so, so it's basically kind of like the, having iCloud for the government.
3: The app store app would be the bad app, basically. right?
4: Right. Okay. Which you can't really do anything about because like, yeah, you
2: otherwise your smartphone it. is useless. I just have the little NSA logo that you touch and Right.
3: By this installing this gonna. app, you agree to the NSA's terms and conditions. <laughs> I, bet well. you it, I bet
4: you it's in the TOS. Nobody reads it, so we it, all agreed to it It's got an opt-out
2: button that doesn't work.
3: <laughs> <laughs> See, that's why you should use just downloading APKs from the internet and installing them manually on Android.
1: That's never fun.
3: That's totally secure.
2: You just gotta read the source code and make sure it's okay. Yeah. That's what we need to do to use our phone.
1: I have a question. Who in here really cares what the NSA sees? On your devices I mean does anyone I mean, care I've mixed feelings about it
3: everyone should care yeah, I don't I have mixed why
2: feelings do you really want the NSA reading everything on your phone I
1: don't care because I'm not a no, terrorist like I don't have anything to hide that from is them. not the argument right Clearly, I I have
4: that I see that viewpoint too like that's part of my that's on one hand on one hand yeah. I don't care because anything that's on my phone or I've done on my phone it's not gonna kill me if everybody knows right. I know a lot of really intense privacy nuts that, no, they they don't care who has that data. They don't want anybody to have it. Yeah, I can understand that. It's their data.
3: The idea is this. If you have no way to have a private conversation, then what freedom do you have?
1: That's a good point, too. Essentially, here's
3: the idea. No matter what country you live in or what place... Every person needs an ability to have a conversation that is not that is either un
4: not government that is regulated. not public
3: or not government related or regulated. For example, and I know this isn't the case, if the government does something that people are unhappy about, they should be able to privately discuss that thing that they did so that something good or bad can come of it. But that right is a basic human right and it should not be as much as the argument of i have nothing to hide is legitimate you shouldn't you shouldn't
4: have to sh- have that argument that's
3: You're- you should still be allowed to have private information whether it be illegal it doesn't matter but the point is what if the government decides that talking to your mom is illegal and you can't talk to your mom anymore i mean not to say that that's going to happen but
2: well there's this thing called the constitution and it has this thing called the bill of rights and it has this thing that says you have freedom to speak. But if you have that freedom taken away from you or infringed upon, that's a problem. Right.
3: You can freely okay. speak. It's. I mean, it's 1984 all over again. You can freely speak and say whatever you want, but the government's going to... The, the, the idea is a system where there is no way to subvert the system is a broken system.
2: And even free speech, it has consequences, of course. Oh, yes. So y- y- we can't say that, you know, the classic, you know, yell f- fire in a crowded theater example. That is... You know, free to do that, but you're also subject to the consequences of doing such a thing and inciting panic. But to have no freedom of speech or that information collected is kind of a violation of privacy. And just think about if someone had access to all the information on your phone, or even just some information. Think about what you can assess from that. Mm-hmm. Your cell phone, uh, just knowing where it is, for example, because that's what it is—it's a tracking device. What information could you gather from just knowing where your phone is, where you live, where you work, how you get between where you live and where you work, places that you go after work, all and, that kind of stuff. And
4: and when the next Edward Snowden comes out and releases all of the information that the government has, has um, gathered about us and our businesses and our activities over all of this time, it will then be public knowledge, yeah. not just the NSA. Or
3: not even, I would say, worse than that is if, Someone, because Snowden didn't have malicious intent. He he was right. doing it with good intent. If someone like someone who had malicious intent, for example, the classic example is China, North Korea, blah blah blah, or Russia, or whoever. Pick your poison as far as governments that we don't really agree Canada. with. Canada, Canada, not so much. <laughs> They're just really sorry for uh, leaking. But
4: <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to hack you, bro. Basically,
3: the idea is if China were to hack the NSA and exfiltrate all this data about citizens of the United States, how much of an advantage would that give them were they to want to perform malicious action against any person? And it's not even to say that it's going to be state-sponsored or anything like that. But if that information is on a forum or if it's publicly available with malicious intent, then you're really in a world of pain.
2: If you wanted to socially engineer anyone, you look through the content of what's in their phone and get information. You already know who they associate with, how they speak in emails It's a financial information. It's just a very slippery slope for what you could do with that information. There is no limit. There is
3: no limit to what you could do at all. I mean, you could completely take over a person's life. Now that we have, you know, these devices in our pockets that essentially control and dictate and contain almost all the information we have access to. That's, I mean, that's a very powerful tool. And if you don't do anything to protect that information, then it can be used against you. Either by the government or by, you know, whoever hacks the government or by... Just some person who decided to set up a cell tower outside where you work just to creep on you. Either way, it should be encrypted and it should be secure. Anyway. Um,
1: anyway, uh, <laughs> speaking of China, why is China attacking Penn State?
3: What is happening? Tell me, Kelsey, what is happening to Penn State?
1: Um, well, basically, there was an attack that led to the, sh- the shutdown of Penn State's their college's network. And it was thought to have originated from China, but nothing was lost. I don't think any personal data or credit card data was stolen, but I'm just wondering <laughs> why is China, you know. If not
4: necessarily. It could be a botnet inside of China because they have such point. poor infrastructure that somebody could just be proxying off of them. If I was um, an
3: attacker from Penn State and I wanted to not have finals because my exam I network was down. I would proxy through China. I would be there. Yeah, I would go through China. North Korea only has like one slash 24, so that's not a good option. <laughs> right.
4: And it's, it's down <laughs> half the time. All right, we're gonna move on because I'm obviously doing really <laughs> well. <laughs> well Transit. They did. No, that was and fantastic. China and North <laughs> down or whatever. But they did have in, in this article. They did have. I want to point out uh, threat actor and advanced persistent threat in the same sentence. <sighs> oh, good for them. <laughs>
3: I'm sure it was so advanced. Oh, and it was super advanced. It was so advanced and persistent that they didn't have to use any security mechanisms. Nope. You know it, what was they it was a sophisticated attack.
2: Some, it really was just some guy who didn't want to take finals.
3: You know what they really should have done? <laughs> is They should have used FireEye. Because if they had used FireEye, right. then they wouldn't have any problems. There is
2: also FireEye in this article. So. Oh,
4: yeah. They're the ones that told them.
2: But they, they, the, FireEye is the one who's using Threat Actor. and, and
3: yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. 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 They're using it. They're making so much money off of it.
1: Well, we're going to get into FireEye later, so. <laughs> um, should we be talking about net USB flaw? I mean, I see that it's leaving millions of routers, Internet of, of Things, devices vulnerable, but I also saw that it's a 90s-style flaw. Anyone have any input on that?
3: Okay, so it's a vulnerability in home routers? Yeah. Here's what I'll say. If you use a home network or a home routing device and you have any reasonable expectation of security or privacy, you're doing it wrong.
2: So what should we be doing instead, Corey? You
3: should be using awesome things like PFSense. I mean, I don't know. I think this this goes back to the whole discussion about embedded devices. This isn't the first time that a home router has had either a backdoor, an easy admin account that was embedded into every system, uh, some random flaw in the web interface. or That's remotely exploitable. That's remotely exploitable. Yeah. I mean, I think that home networking devices are...
4: It's a remotely exploitable kernel stack buffer overflow.
2: Basically, every home router is inevitably going to have something vulnerable.
4: D-Link, Netgear, TP-Link, TrendNet.
3: Essentially, if somehow you're lucky enough to have a home router which has firmware updates, somehow do do the firmware update. But also, if you know that your router has firmware updates, you should use a better router, like something that's more enterprise-grade. Like PFSense, it's free.
2: Doesn't PFSense also have issues to that come up?
3: They have had issues, but at not least... Not like this. They have never had a remote execution <laughs> issue in the last five years. They, all the issues they've had are more enterprise-level issues, like session or cross-site scripting. like Not stuff that should be exposed on WAN, of course. Not remotely exploitable, at least if you're doing it I right. I mean, there
4: are ways to get around it other than upgrading your firmware. If you're if if you, if you not technical enough to upgrade your firmware, you can... Uh, you probably can't
3: you, get those ways implemented successfully.
4: Y- possibly essentially
3: or or not to log into your stuff it does put home users at a a unfortunate yeah it puts them in an unfair place because as a home user like what is my grandma going to do she's not going to upload a firmware file that's some hex dump that she's going (laughs) to put in her router and upgrade it she's not going to buy a new router every two years just to make sure that it doesn't get or even every like six months just (laughs) to make sure that nothing is backdoored the companies who design and produce these things have a responsibility to the end users to get pen tests to implement security in some level that at least makes some sense and it's kind of unfair
2: and the companies don't really have an incentive to necessarily do that
3: oh no they don't because once the once the sale is made that's their all of their interaction with the customer
4: wasn't there like a Kickstarter or something at one point that had a pfSense box? I that mean, there they were are trying to get out to there are pfSense,
3: there are devices that I guess you could call consumer grade devices, like, but they start around four hundred dollars, and you still have to know how to configure pfSense, all all those kinds of things that users have no idea how to set up.
2: Even at the enterprise level, you see a lot of those same configurations. It doesn't matter that it's a, a less expensive device. Even when you look at, like, the basic entry-level firewall sort of things that, like, a small business would be using, it's not uncommon at all to see, you know, your 192.168.00 or one. But does it automatically
3: come configured that way? Yes. It does.
2: Most of the time they do, yeah.
3: So would it be vulnerable to these same issues because it's using the same software or firmware?
2: It's probably different software, but the software could be based on the same source code. That's true. Who knows? So the
3: flaw that exists in the enterprise grade application could exist in the consumer grade application.
2: It's, it's possible, but there's probably differences and probably better support in the enterprise case. Very
3: true. And also in, in enterprise, you're assuming that there's someone who knows how to f- update the firmware at least somewhere. Probably not. Not in small office or Le- small well, home. legal practices, doctors' offices, manufacturing
2: company that you know they have their devices that just they need internet access for their yeah, office yeah. and they also plug in you know their control units into the same network <laughs> yeah they did that in
3: iran a few years ago <laughs> i think
2: but it's, it's the same idea those environments are I, yes the home users are going to be targets for all that kind of stuff but an attacker going after grandma surfing the internet isn't necessarily going to have the same impact than you know trying to get the into legal a,
3: practice or the doctor's office Yeah. so here's the question i, I agree with you as far as people who run these systems should probably have some update channel and should probably have some awareness. However, do you think that the ISPs have some kind of a responsibility to protect their end users who can't necessarily protect themselves?
2: I think that's a yes and no sort of thing. And that might even go into the net neutrality sort of thing. Some people don't want their ISP to do anything
4: I know I don't, but I do
3: want my ISP to protect my grandma who has no idea what router firmware even is. Like if Google did it, I would be happy. I mean, don't get I, me wrong. I see
2: cases where, yes, it would be great for, you know, your your user has no business having anything that should be ever accessed. Who has 80 open
3: and their web yep. interface Yeah, we open.
2: need, uh, we need not different packages. Has, not everyone has a router even. They're plugging their laptop right into the Internet. Yep. Something like that, if the ISP could segment that off and basically prevent any inbound traffic to them, that would be awesome.
3: But they're just giving them a public IP, and it's up to them to have a firewall.
2: Yeah. yeah. A lot of times, the ISP is technically giving a firewall in the sense that your router is blocking inbound access to some degree.
3: Well, when you say your router, are you talking about the consumer router or, or the, of the ISP, ISP router? the ISP
2: devices will provide a router-type device, because it's everyone a, wants it's a, f- a modem. Router, they want modem. Wi-Fi. Yeah,
3: if you want Wi-Fi, you need a router, which is going to have a firewall.
2: And a lot of times that's provided by the ISP anymore. Yeah, so It's a modem, router, firewall. All-in-one. Sort of...
3: I don't know of any cable provider that will give you a Wi-Fi. At least mine, like an actual router. I'm
2: probably more thinking of like AT and T and U Verse. Yeah, pretty much. U is option. one.
3: DSL is the same way. Like with the two wire devices, those are like all in one. They have router firmware. Blah blah blah.
2: Something like that. If the ISP has the modem built in and all that, it it almost seems like there should be an option for the ISP to take responsibility to keep that updated. That's I could never going to happen. But no. um
3: Well do the okay, so that's an interesting thing. Like even in an enterprise application, does the ISP like for example here at Hurricane, I know we have Cox. Does Cox have a a responsibility to upgrade our modem? Or do we have that responsibility?
2: The the premise equipment is typically owned by the ISP.
3: But I, do they update it?
2: That I don't know about. I think
3: they'll fight with you. Because there have probably been backdoors in modem firmware. Basically, yeah. does the, the ISP clearly Although I guess it's weird because at least for a lot of consumers you can either bring your own modem or lease it from them it's your call. So if if but it say you lease their modem do they have some responsibility to update it? I'm sure that their agreement says they don't have any responsibility to update it. But is there a is that ethical or moral is it required for them or should it be?
2: I don't know if it makes sense to be something that would be required because they don't even have the overhead to configure ISP circuits correctly. Yeah, I, I would say it would be. A, I
4: would say it would be a good business practice, but can I see any of them actually doing it? No,
3: because yeah, that, that's, that's probably It's just
2: a loss for them because mm-hmm. there's no incentive to their business and bottom line to do anything. And they
3: don't and have we'll, enough people asking for it yeah, either. Unless people actually consider security when choosing an ISP, then there would be. A, <laughs> but. For my grandma, I kind of wish that she had a well-configured firewall and firmware updates getting pushed down to her from the ISP.
2: Like it'd be great if there was, you know, grandma internet that yeah, basically you
3: could select your service level. Do you want grandma internet or do you want Tom internet?
2: It's not the same thing.
4: Tom internet's just actually
3: <laughs> Tom internet is actually two megabytes per second.
4: It's slower, it's than, than, grandma slower internet. than grandma internet, but it allows you to have free you have access. more
3: control. But it's still slower. You have to use protocols from like 1999, like OWA.
2: Anyway, before so so just to <laughs> You need to stop this. <laughs> you when you've pen tested things like wireless networks, you occasionally run into segmented networks where yes. the wireless is you know there is no way to talk cross talk between the things. Yes, that that's how I see grandma internet.
3: Being. That's how I see it, but it's <laughs> I think it's also basically all ports blocked. And but bound. eighty. No, inbound. Ba- what? No, no, not inbound. Oh, inbound, everything's in- blocked. Inbound, yes. everything's
4: blocked. Outbound, the only thing opens eighty no, it four should four be, three. No, it
3: should only, you be, get only D- be... You're D- not going to allow DNS. Nope. It should only, it should <laughs> she, only be... She's
4: <laughs> <laughs> got to remember those IP addresses. Grandma should
3: be using encrypted protocols. But no. Okay, all right, Kelsey. <laughs> I'm sorry, Grandma. Kelsey, Kelsey has actually been sleeping for the last 10 minutes. <laughs> as, <Ninth> long now, <laughs> as long as
2: it doesn't... As long as Gram Internet doesn't allow any sort of video conferencing or VoIP, I'm Knit, with
4: it. knitting.com is it's not, an, not SSL. So you can <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I
1: think I need to take control. Here. So Kelsey, what are we supposed <laughs> to be This is what talking? happens when Bill well, isn't here. We touched on you know certain responsibilities of ISPs. Uh, can we do research and? Put things in the show notes to give a little more information instead of just surmising. Well, for what I <laughs> like Tom will read ISP. the
4: terms of content. There is, <laughs> terms of. There is no actual. <clears throat>
1: Anyone who has ever worked with an ISP
2: knows that they're completely incompetent.
1: Yes, thank you. Discussion. So next, <laughs> next, um, I'm going to pass it off to Amanda, ah. and she's talking about uh, Google bringing superpowers to Chrome users.
4: Yeah. So what I thought was cool about this, and we were talking earlier, is uh, you know taking your phone everywhere with you, which is basically a what a GPS locator. So
2: it's anything the NSA wants it, it to be, It's right. the employee tracking. Now you,
4: you can also do that with your laptop with a Chrome extension. It will automatically turn on your uh, microphone. And you can broadcast URLs to other people's laptops without having to actually send them the link. Okay. With why? beep codes. Why? It, I oh. don't know. It's a, but the first thing I thought of when I when I read this was now you don't have to whistle launch codes. <laughs> you can you can do a beep code instead.
3: So how is this better than copy and paste? <laughs>
1: uh, I don't know. They needed something fun to do.
3: Obviously. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, Google hasn't exactly invested only in things that would pay out on a business level.
2: <laughs> I guess you know. Sometimes when you're bored with self-driving cars, you have to. Uh, you
4: have to do something. I you think this is. Create Chrome extension. Th- there was
3: a proof of concept for using this to jump air gaps a while ago. So yeah. I'm glad that someone implemented it to right? make, to pretend like it was going to be used for consumers when it's <laughs> not.
1: So this Chrome browser, I mean, superpower. Is, this is another just outlandish. I mean, is this actually useful? No, cool.
3: Absolutely not. No. No. In no way. Because All I doubt right. it even works. Great. I mean, we even should if try it. We should try it and record it on the podcast. So just be beeping.
2: Didn't didn't we have the telegraph like a really long time yeah. ago that did the same thing? It seems really? kind
3: of backwards to actually teach our browsers how to use Morse code, <laughs> since they use like way more <laughs> up to date protocols. <laughs> but I mean, hey, I guess Morse code maybe is a better encoding than English stuff. You know? I
2: guess if ASCII. you were, if you had an air gap, which was like a glass wall, and you could somehow get a microphone to listen. The vibrations coming through there, and just send a high volume audio—you know—piercing noise. No one would notice that this is happening.
3: For well, I mean, if it's a data center, there's no one there. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Except for that guy who's voiping with one of the people there. And
1: so now that all of our users, listeners—not users, listeners—are sleeping, I think we need to wrap up this <laughs> section. So, you too, Kelsey. I, I guess I, I am. I'm
2: Fortunately, we don't have any listeners to worry about. So
1: we're not. Yeah,
3: like 12, I think. Really? I, think. I
2: thought the number was like six.
3: Well, that's still more than zero. Tone.
4: I know two of them. Fantastic. I would say
3: one way to get listeners is not to talk about how we don't have listeners.
4: Okay, so know, we're all about all, all you listeners,
2: we we appreciate your sponsor your support sponsorship. <laughs> and
4: uh, and we, if you want to sponsor this amazing podcast, contact
1: Kelsey. <laughs> no, you can't. Po- PF
3: Sense is the official sponsor. <laughs> don't of this contact podcast. me
1: about that. Anyway, so we've got these, you know, super Hashtag. cool names. Hashtag net usb hashtag irritant horn shell logjam. Uh, now we have venom and oh which okay is a super- yeah pen uh, test time. This pen is, test is actually time. Good. exploitable and it's yeah. actually
3: really cool
2: and and it uses floppy drives.
3: It's more exploitable than logjam definitely oh yeah for some reason news articles have this need to, m- to measure everything on the heart bleed scale so everything yeah. <laughs> it's like it's well, that's like as a logo it's like year zero as far as vulnerability research quote-unquote is concerned so I would say this is probably about like if heart bleed is the level I would say this is like this so is, is like points a ten this is like point eight heart bleeds mm. like it's
4: <laughs> like eight, eight it's an eight bleeds.
3: it's it's like seven eighths of a heart bleed is what I would say because It's basically a flaw that allows remote code execution and memory corruption on VMs, which is awesome. And when I say VMs, I mean if I'm running a VM and we're on the same box, then I can use my VM to gain remote code execution on your box and also read your box's memory and do all kinds of fun things. So the exploitation, once you have access, is really good. However, the access is kind of hit and miss. Like if someone said, okay, you have to exploit this flaw, what I would do is – and don't do this if you're listening because that would probably be illegal or something. You could do it in a lab. Do it in a lab or something, yeah, because that's – no. Okay, so (laughs) basically what I would do is go get an Amazon AWS micro instance. And then I would run this exploit and see who else was on my AWS box and see what happens. And that's what I'm sure a lot of uh, Chinese hackers are doing right now. Essentially, the overall exposure is less than Heartbleed because Heartbleed was just a bunch of open ports sitting on the internet. This is like you have to have at least local access, but it's actually surprisingly easy to get local access to a VM, to a VM environment.
2: So this is a flaw that actually exists in the Zen virtualization environment. Is that what AWS backends
3: on? I... Uh, I assume so. There was a lot of mentions. Uh, basically, okay, so it's the QEMU libraries that are used in Zen. But I think they're also used in other virtualization. I don't
2: believe it's used in VMware,
3: though. It's not. It's not used in VMware or Virtual uh, VirtualBox. But basically, the idea is it's a library that Zen uses, not Zen itself. I don't think they coded the library. Maybe they did. I don't know. But.
2: And it actually is the software component that's used to virtualize floppy disks.
3: Yeah, it's pretty cool. The exploit... <laughs> It's funny because the exploitation targets the library that's used to load floppy disks virtually, which even if it's disabled, it still works due to an unrelated bug, which basically leaves the code running even if it's disabled. So essentially there's nothing you can do on a sysadmin level other than patch it. You can't disable. Disabling won't do anything. I don't know if AWS is vulnerable to this, but if they're not, I'm sure there's some hosting company that is. HostGator or whatever, you know, the, all kinds and of... And oh yeah, <laughs> sure. if you're
4: vulnerable to this, please tweet, too. Oh, yeah, sure.
3: If you're vulnerable to this, please tweet, to. Thanks for hacking me at china.com. I
2: would say that uh, if you are a hosting provider that uses vulnerable applications, you might see a Burst in revenue. Yeah, yeah. you might <laughs> make
3: tons of money. People are going to be signing up for the budget, though. I would increase your bottom, like your lowest tier of usage. I would increase the prices because that's what the the script kitties are going for.
2: But it is uh, KVM and and VirtualBox are some of the commercial ones that are vulnerable. So VirtualBox is using the same. It uh, is code okay. Base. Yeah. So
3: essentially, there's. I don't know if there has been published data on who uses what. I would suspect that Amazon tries pretty hard not to tell people what software they're using I for that exact so. reason. But, hey, I mean, it's one of those things where if you've got 20 bucks laying around, you might as well try, right? I mean, And the point is, if you do try and you succeed, then the pay- payoff
2: is pretty large. Hurricane Labs does not recommend doing anything that Corey just said or, likewise, anything that Corey has ever said.
3: That's very <laughs> true.
2: And Thank you,
1: Tom, for that disclaimer. So anyway, I like how with the Venom, one journalist was trying to make it seem like it's bigger than Heartbleed. That's funny. But you're saying that this new security bug isn't as scary. I
3: would say the exposure is way less. Okay. Because you still have to have, you have to be granted local access to some virtualization environment, which that's just a big hurdle. That's a big, (laughs) that's a little bit bigger of a hurdle than just typing in an address and going there because the internet connects everything together. I don't know. Some, Some people were talking about like, this is why you should have hardware isolation guaranteed to you on virtual platforms and like that kind of stuff.
2: But, the only way to do that is to have only your VM running on the virtual environment, which yeah. you're basically on bare metal. Why about. would well, you have a VM? No, what
3: your what your what? I guess some hosting providers offer hardware isolation. Essentially, we'll give you a box, put whatever VMs you want on it, but you won't have the same. You won't have As other, another customer. Yeah, you won't have other customers' VMs on your box. So it's... Would you pay a premium for? Yeah, of course. And maybe you should. I don't know. I think so. Well, now that you're this exists, using you using more hardware. Yeah. What I'm saying is, other than this exploit, I have no... I can't come up with a reason why that would make any sense.
1: Before we move on, I just want to hit on a couple of articles. Uh, the Washington Post was hacked by Syrian Electronic Army. Is anyone surprised? Was it a DNS redirect attack? I mean, the you know, Syria,
2: Syrian Syria. Electronic Army, army has... Uh, Done that before?
3: Yeah, DNS redirects. I think oh, that's yeah. all they know how to do. I thought it was only their mobile site. Yeah, it mo- was mobile
2: site. Yep. Which that just means they shouldn't have mobile sites.
3: <laughs> Everyone has an app now, Tom.
2: Every time you go to a mobile site, it doesn't have the content that's on the actual
1: site. That's true. I always click go to desktop. That's site.
3: why you should install the app. But you just
1: have the mobile app. Or I the don't mobile like site the Washington install. Post so. <laughs> But they've resolved the issue. So okay, moving on. So, Thank you. you. I can I can, <laughs> you're you can not go there. Kelsey resolved the issue real quick.
2: It's yeah, resolved. There is no technical information in the article here either. <laughs> no, so there isn't.
1: Yeah, I was trying to look for it, but no. Anyway, um Uber and plain text passwords. Uh, just don't be a plain text offender, please.
2: Here, you just signed up for this really secure password. Here's your password.
3: Right. And email. And, or, and
1: your username. I've had it before. Oh yeah. All or, the time.
2: Um
4: they limit you to fifteen characters your password.
3: Yeah. One time we were pen testing a website and the password reset email said if you do not if you did not request this email please ignore it. And we were <laughs> like wait what?
0: <laughs> no, no, do not ignore it.
3: <laughs> Call support, you've been hacked or you're at least attempting someone is attempting to wait, hack. Wait, if
1: you, you did not
3: Okay. If you didn't request it, oh my it, gosh, and
1: they said ignore it. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Basically, <Good job. laughs> the idea is in your password reset email. You should probably say, if you did not request this email, please call us immediately. Can I can I do that wow. for all
2: my emails that I get that I don't request? Yes. Like, no.
3: Just ignore them. Yeah. Call support. <laughs> just go call. ahead. Call support and say, hi. Yeah, is this Uber? I didn't ask for you to send me marketing emails, so
2: just call just call up Bill and be like, hey, Bill, uh, you sent me an email and.
1: Uh, I didn't ask for that to be sent to me, so uh, (laughs) I'm just gonna have to ignore it. (laughs) I didn't
3: ask for password reset, Bill.
1: All right, I think we're gonna move on to our hot topic talk. And thanks. If you haven't been
3: listening, now listen. Now Now is the the important
1: part. Now. (laughs) So thanks to Logjam, our talk is going to be about encryption. And uh, yeah, before we fully dive into it, Amanda, would you give us a little brief overview of your recent blog post? Sure.
4: It was very well titled. I got very uh, a lot of compliments on the title that Good. Kelsey came up with Good. because my title was horrible. Finally, I did something right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Dealing with the dinosaurs of IT, setting up VSFTBD on Ubuntu. So I had, in, not not at my current position, but somewhere else, um, I had to set up a um, SFTP server to transfer some sensitive data to from one side of well from our network to one of our vendors and halfway through the project after all of the sftp was set up they let me know that our mainframe had to actually ftp to the same box and have access to the same sensitive information that they were SFTPing.
2: it's always those mainframes that cause problems God, yeah
3: why were we using ftp anyway
4: because the mainframe doesn't support to get, SFTP. To get anything
2: secure on a mainframe is like a million dollars.
3: No, but I mean, even SFTP, <laughs> why were you using <laughs> SFTP? Anyway, that you don't uh, have yeah. to answer that question. Um, you didn't you have a choice. One, you one just go to
2: <laughs> IBM.com and download the latest software for your mainframe and yes. throw it on there and everything's going to work.
4: <laughs> yes.
3: I thought mainframes were supposed to be smart. Can't they update themselves using AI? <laughs>
4: <laughs> so it was kind of uh, the technical struggles I went through to... Um, <laughs> to set up the different kinds of access for uh, SFTP versus FTP because it was a shared server with multiple people and multiple protocols, and it's kind of a, a how-to in one of those uh, niche situations.
1: It's cool. It was, I, I liked it. It was well-written. I learned a lot. So.
2: Is this one of those cases where you had the uh, separated, shared environment on a VM that was vulnerable to Venom?
4: <laughs> yes. Well, <actually> <laughs> Kelsey <laughs> is actually... and Logjam also.
3: Now Kelsey is going to... Uh, be this main sysadmin for all of our FTP services here at Hurricane Labs. Yeah. Oh, so. that
1: would be dangerous.
2: Unfortunately, yeah, we don't have any. So. Yeah. Well, that's why she's. <laughs> sh-
1: don't tell her that.
2: Oh. Yeah, Kelsey, you're gonna do a great job. She's a lead admin. I she need more the Bud blog, Light. The director of file transfer protocol services.
4: <laughs> you know that's a title somewhere.
1: <laughs> you guys are awesome. Anyway, um, yeah, we're yeah. This is the last time she's doing this. <laughs> Bill is definitely coming back next time. <laughs> Tech giants, uh, Apple, Google, etc., whoever else, are urging the U.S. government to retain strong encryption. Any thoughts on that? Yes. Is this before or after they get into the uh, the app store and backdoor it?
3: This is after because now the yeah. problem is that they have a backdoor, but they but can't read all, all the too? yeah. Well, all the other data that they're <laughs> sniffing is encrypted, and they can't figure out how to decrypt it. So now they're like, "Guys, what are you doing? You're making it hard. <laughs> we don't know how to decrypt stuff. God. We're the government. We take like six months just to get a project going to figure out how to decrypt stuff." So, so Kelsey, why don't you tell us why Google would? Why recommend.
1: Why do I have to tell about all
3: this? <laughs> because you, you're, you have a <laughs> unique perspective as a marketing person. You do. Tell us why marketing Google can, be- users have a better experience if they offer encryption. Well, strong encryption, obviously.
1: Because strong encryption is the cornerstone of the modern information economy security. Ooh. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> that is she has been to good. way too
3: many conferences, kids. I just,
1: I just <laughs> see that in
2: a, in a press release somewhere. Yeah, it is. It is. Isn't in the <laughs> it? <laughs> you She's just read it. She's right reading a press out. release. <laughs> Says Kelsey Clark, digital market marketing <laughs> specialist in Hurricane Straight Latin. from her list.
3: truly a specialist. I think we oh, all Oh, special. Mm-hmm. So anyway, since that answer is going to work perfectly, <laughs> um, I think we can move on. I think there's what else can be said.
1: <laughs> no, please.
3: <laughs> I mean, the, the, the idea. I'm going
1: to cry. We've <laughs> been th- truth-
3: arguing
2: about this forever. I mean. <laughs> no,
3: the truth is, okay, we talked about this earlier in the podcast. Users should be able to use encryption to be safe from anyone, including the same agencies that are po- claim to be protecting them from terrorists. Basically, hey. if a hacker from China can break encryption, or I guess the other way around, if the NSA can easily break encryption because they force Google to use weak encryption, then I'm sure a hacker from China can do it too. That exposes users to unnecessary risk, and that's why Google says this is stupid. We should have strong encryption. So, basically,
2: where was I? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Beep. Say again, Tom? I know what,
2: I know what I was going to say. But
1: uh, well, while you're thinking, if there's criminal activity, do you not think that law enforcement agencies should be able to access certain information? Or do you think it should no, still because remain? No, it's all or nothing. Okay. Well, that's fair. I mean, there's, I can uh, agree yeah, with that.
3: I would say that's a pretty good argument. It's all or nothing. So if you're exposing it to law enforcement agencies, you're also exposing it to potential attackers who have malicious intent. And the other thing is Or malicious law enforcement. Yeah, yeah, that's another problem, too, is that there have been many, many recorded cases of law enforcement overstepping their bounds as far as what data they're accessing on people's personal cell phones.
2: Well, even there is history in the NSA of doing the same thing. Oh,
3: yeah, definitely. And, I mean, the idea is there's no way to, like... I, I think the NSA still thinks this is possible, but I think they also secretly know they're wrong. There's no way to be, like... Yeah, we'll be able to do it, but no one else will. That's not how it works. <laughs> because here's the reality: if you put the if you put a backdoor in your cryptography algorithms or, if, or in your cryptographic libraries, if there's a backdoor, people are going to find it. And when they find it, then that leaves every user who uses that library vulnerable. There's no way to perfectly implement some, you know,
4: Se- super secret some
3: super secret backdoor that works for all law enforcement agencies. And I think that the other thing is it's just like searching someone's house. It's like saying, shouldn't everyone have perfectly transparent walls in their houses? Because what if the law enforcement should need to look in and see people, you know, if they're in trouble or if there's domestic violence, they should be able to see it. Like, okay, well, we should have some sort of a process to grant access to the law enforcement agencies when they need it. And we do. In the case of we have identified this person as a terrorist. So we went to a judge and we said, a real judge, not that like, the judge, secret- judge Judy? <laughs> no, no, the opposite of Judge Judy. The ones that never show up on the public record, let alone on television. Right. Uh, but basically, you go to a judge and you say, hey, this person's a terrorist and I can prove it. Okay, well, here you go. Here's access to their phone logs. and I mean, it makes Which sense. That, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Like Essentially, and this is everyone's argument that argues against the NSA, is basically saying, Why can't we just use traditional investigation, traditional detective work? It's been working for however many years. We don't need to do dragnet surveillance when targeted surveillance works just fine. I don't know what kind of research there is out there, but I would guess that traditional detective work is not going anywhere and it doesn't need to go anywhere. We don't need to have some algorithm that determines whether someone's a terrorist or not. We can just judge based on the factors in a certain case.
2: And I think that Always, you should be using the strongest available, viable encryption technique for whatever you're dealing with. And, and if it
4: doesn't have anything that ha- that is capable of doing that encryption, you need to change it.
2: Yeah, and you should also adapt as encryption gets broken and computers get faster and are able to exploit those encryption weaknesses.
4: Yeah, but then you have all the insurance companies and education and healthcare that still run on mainframes.
3: As time goes on, there's going to be more room in the budget for security because it's going to be do this or don't compete, basically. Because hey, if you're Penn State and you don't have security and you get hacked by China every other week and your entire mainframe goes down every other week, then you're not going to get many teachers or students that want to <laughs> take part in that. So, I mean, it's
2: a good advertisement for their computer security program.
3: <laughs> Please, we let our students run our <laughs> oh, we let geez. our students run our systems, and that's why we got hacked by China.
1: Um, I have a question that I, I'm sure comes up frequently. I know it's been aimed at Tom a few times, but you know, how often should things be encrypted, or how do you in- decide what to encrypt?
2: You encrypt everything. Everything. <laughs> and why? And I
1: understand that you've said that before I've heard it, I've heard you say it before, but why? why?
2: Because so let's just say you have an application that you wrote, and it takes inputs like your name, your address, your social security number, and your credit card number. Why would you want to have to, well, You guess you have options. You can encrypt nothing, which is stupid. You could encrypt some things, which leaves the possibility, say, if someone confuses you know, the name with their social security number, it's still in there unencrypted. Or it relies on the application to do it correctly. Or you just encrypt everything, and if the database gets breached or whatever, you don't know what any of this encrypted data goes to. It's just kind of a catch-all.
3: Don't encrypt anything. My job is way easier if you don't encrypt anything.
2: Yeah, <laughs> and you don't want to make Corey's life easier. So <laughs> if anything, that's a great reason to encrypt
3: anything. Personally, as a pen tester, I love plain text protocols.
2: Personally, <laughs> as a someone who does not want to have things pen tested, you, well, don't you want mean encryption. you mean
3: a pen tested with no consent by someone who is a foreign actor in this situation.
2: <laughs> when China is doing your pen test.
3: <laughs> that's not so much a pen test.
2: <laughs> it's a
1: free pen test. Anyway, I don't know where this question even came from, but do any of you think encryption is going to be dead eventually? Like, is there going to be something? Can't say for sure.
3: No, absolutely not. Because every day, cryptographers are dreaming of better encryption algorithms, and that will always rise to meet whatever breaking is done on encryption mechanisms.
4: I'm going to go out and say in 20 years, there'll be something different.
3: What? Other than encryption? <laughs> We might not call right. it i like the eye roll but it's going to be the same <laughs> idea so what is this? i needed
4: right. to argue with Corey so about wh- something
3: <laughs> is that what we're supposed <laughs> to be arguing about whether <laughs> encryption will exist i thought we no, were, arguing were ab- looking no. 20
4: years into the future and thinking what technology was like 20 years ago and saying encryption won't be a thing in 20 well, years well plaintext
3: protocols were the the in thing in 20 years ago so and they're well, still around now
2: <laughs> here's the thing you look at it cryptography as, as a concept has existed since, like, the Roman era, if not even yeah, older. Yeah, Caesar cipher.
4: That's
3: the yeah. first one, right? <laughs> Caesar cipher? Yeah, you don't know what a Caesar cipher is? No. Oh, yeah, it's basically... I'm not a cryptographer, so if you're a cryptographer and you somehow listen to this, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm pretty
2: sure
4: there's no cryptography. Basically, <laughs> what it is, is you, it's
3: a substitution <laughs> cipher, oh, so basically, okay. like...
2: You take the whole alphabet, you write it out, and then you, you, move, you move it with one letter, st- you right. write A, it's and then you right. put Z at the end, it's, and then it's encrypted.
3: It's the equivalent of, like... Just moving your fingers on left on your keyboard before you type your password. So
2: I didn't know that's what it was
3: called. I guess. Yeah. I thought we were supposed to argue about whether hacking planes is a good idea.
1: Yes, and ah. is everyone ready to argue?
2: I love arguing with Corey. Yeah.
1: I am ready to argue. Great. So, are airplane hackers good or bad? Here we go.
3: I'm gonna S- go out on an limb here, <laughs> and I'm gonna say honestly, though, airplane hackers are bad. The reason I give for this, and there's a really good carnal ownage blog post about this, and if you want to hear a way better perspective than mine, you should go and read it.
1: Uh, we'll have that in the show notes. Yes. So.
3: But basically, the idea of the article is that it talks about, it defines something that they call stunt hacking, which is essentially when you're like... Which is a new term. Which is a new term, I guess, coined by some person way smarter than I. Basically, the idea of stunt hacking is, I am a cool hacker and... And I like to go on news channels and talk about how good I am at hacking. So I'm going to hack something that the news channels will like, like an airplane. And it might seem cool as a hacker to be like, oh, I hacked an airplane. Yeah, okay, cool. Um, But here's the problem, that you're actually subverting everything that works in security. And sensationalism is a problem in security because how it should be done, responsible disclosure and all that, is completely in antithesis to just announcing on Twitter that you're on a plane, you totally hacked it. I think that if you if you say – if you're on a plane and you hack it, first of all, you have no regard for your own safety and you're an idiot because, <laughs> because you're 35,000 feet above the, the earth on a plane that is keeping you alive and you're potentially cutting that life support offline that uh, just got to reboot the plane. That's a terrible idea, and if you think that's a good idea, then... They
4: do have to reboot planes. Did you read about that? Yes, yes okay. I did. all right, just making sure you didn't make that.
3: So um, not only are you potentially subverting your own personal safety, and, and also not to mention the safety of the other 138 or however many people there are on the plane with you who apparently you have no regard for their lives either, but also you're you're going against what has been a very hard war over the years of figuring out how vulnerabilities and hackers can can go with the manufacturers and to get something that actually makes sense out of all of that. Because years ago, a lot of irresponsible disclosures happened, and that led companies to portray, I guess you could call them security researchers or hackers or whatever, basically portray those people as being bad and as being enemies of their companies. But the truth is that a lot of people worked really hard to make it so that they're not enemies. They're considered, I guess, friends or they can be used to help you. Like, that's where we get things like bug bounties and responsible disclosure. And all those things are good things. And that's how it should be done. It should be done where you should work with the companies who design these aircraft systems, the companies who are administrating these systems, the companies, the vendors who are selling them.
4: But what if the airlines don't care when you've brought it up to them before and they continue to put everybody's life at risk with those vulnerabilities on every single plane every if, day.
3: If the airlines don't care, then the FAA should care and they probably do. And the FAA is who who regulates the air, aircrafts. I mean, I I could see that, but there is a legitimate point to be made that if if the vendor never responds and you've you've tried, I mean, that's the idea of gray hat Right. And responsible disclosure is if the vendor doesn't respond, then you disclose the information publicly and then hopefully they'll notice. However, I would say in this case, in the case of a airline or in the case of the FAA, or the, even in the case of the vendors who design these products, especially based on the culture of aviation and the, the extreme regulations and safety precautions that they take, I can almost guarantee that the companies, the airlines, the vendors, and the FAA are going to notice and they're going to care. Whether especially if you don't, they're going to care.
4: Do you think they care more now?
3: Do I think they ca- I mean, maybe, but I think that the amount that they care is, I don't know, it's really hard to say. Obviously, I don't have any experience working for a vendor who sells products to an aviation, you know, to a company that would put them in a plane. But I would, assi- if I, you know, if I was the manager of whatever company sells these products that go on planes, I would say that safety is going to be pretty high on your list of, features for your product and especially when you're talking about something that that people really care about the safety of planes and
2: i would disagree i would disagree too the thing that they care about is getting their parts sold to the airlines or the plane manufacturers and making them you know sell more of these things if
3: if if that product is on a plane and it brings a plane down they're never going to sell another product again.
2: I don't think that they're necessarily thinking about that when they're designing these products. You know what? Saying
1: safety is the top of like an airplane's priorities, or whatever product is like saying security is at the top of the CEO's mind for their company or product or service. So I don't believe that. Let's just say
2: you have a computer-controlled device that controls the fuel flow to your jet engines.
1: Okay. So let's just say that it's controlled
2: over a network. They're concerned. They're getting to look at this from the perspective of Hey, it's an air gap network. Why do we need even secure this? This could just be a you know a, a TCP packet with a flag set for send for gas on. Or, yeah. or stop sending gas, <laughs> and maybe you know make it a, a you know a decimal value so that you could have less gas or more gas go to the engine.
3: So you're saying that, that their pro- concern is that it works?
2: Yes, and their concern is that it you know it turns on and off just without like industrial being a problem, control systems, and it doesn't stick in a case where the plane is you know shut with no fuel or stuck with a wide open throttle. That's what the testing I would think you'd be doing in that manufacturing. Not like, can some guy who's, you know, on w- the in-flight entertainment system with a cable under his laptop. Yeah, they
4: don't have red team mentality. Yeah. They
2: want it to run. They think of it is never going to be misused. No one's going to ever send any sort of traffic to it other than the plane controller saying, send gas to the engine.
3: I would say that that may be true that they're concerned primarily with it working. However, first of all, in aviation, one of the most basic... Ideas that's implemented is redundancy. and
2: So they have multiple engines with multiple of these things and possibly, you know, more than one device. It's, it's not, the control protocol for this is probably not something that they're looking at being redundant in the sense of, you know, protecting the plane from someone who's trying to hack into it.
3: I would say that safety would still be a considerable Safety of your product and security ties in directly to the safety of the product. Okay,
2: so you're a pen tester here. And yes. And you test websites. Pens.
3: Well, I test a lot of different things. But you test
2: websites, right? I do. And what are some things that people would put in on a website?
3: Uh, forms.
2: Yeah, and what kind of information would go on a form?
3: Anything really, personal data, SSN, what's your name, what's your address. Credit card numbers. Credit card numbers. Yeah. Or just PHI. random things like what kind of tubes do you want to buy
2: do, does that have value that information that
3: information yes
2: if it's something that's posted on a web server is there an assumption that only the person who's legitimately using the web server is going to be the person who's using it or could there be external factors such as attackers trying to get to that web server
3: the second one yes the attackers
2: yes does every web application that you guys test is designed with security being the forefront of that
3: no however there is a difference between oh no our website went down and oh no our plane went down
2: i disagree because if the plane <laughs> if a,
3: if i'm a- sorry if you so, or your family remember, have died from a plane crash remember what
2: you remember what you said tom's er- wrong kids remember <laughs> remember what you said earlier if you know the part was responsible for the plane going down they wouldn't be in business you might then run into the same situation if an entire site is down and a company loses all their assets. They're out of business, too. That's there have been examples of this where, I forget what organization it was, but it was a company that did that uh, GitHub on the cloud. Oh, yeah, yeah, they yeah. They completely went out of business because their website s- their their was Okay,
3: there is an inherent difference between data and human life.
1: I think he's talking about the principle The
3: principle is different because when you're talking about a plane, you're talking about life support systems, essentially. And that's a whole different ballgame. And also, when you look at the FAA and other regulatory – look at plane crashes, figure out what happened. The only goal in any plane crash is to figure out what went wrong and fix it. And that means that all these systems are designed with safety as the number one priority. So the hydraulics.
2: How, how often do planes crash? But physically, not, not often at not, all. Not how but often like, do web servers crash?
3: <laughs> <laughs> all the time because they don't care as much if they crash.
4: But, like, phys- I, I mean, I've. Not research, but I've listened to some talks based on FFA, FAA regulations and and the kind of stuff that they have to go through when a mistake is made. Even the smallest mistake is made it's that's huge. outside of protocol. It is gigantic. Yes. But how much of that do they think about when they're designing the software that runs on the planes?
3: Maybe I mean I would say okay if you're comparing, for example, the the fuel exchange or the fuel flow or flight control systems like flaps or something the amount of safety that's going to be inherently built into the systems that control the plane are going to be is going to be higher than the systems that provides the you know provides the passengers with in-flight entertainment but I, when
4: they're not air gapped that comes into play as an it, you know that's then in scope
3: so what you're saying is that the the FAA doesn't necessarily regulate it i don't know or, okay so Basically, you're saying that there is less of a consideration of safety with when designing like an in-flight entertainment system than there is when designing like a flight control system. Because who would care yeah. if
4: the in-flight entertainment gets hacked?
3: I mean, I would say... Obviously, it's impossible to speculate as to whether... Well, right. Because, I mean, at this point, we're at a point in the world where all the information is out and it can't be redacted. But I would say that and if you approached an airline... I mean, and I don't know. I, I never was the person who did the security research based on this. But I would say if you approached either the FAA or an airline and said, hey, I can bring your plane down with the in-flight entertainment system, they're going to listen up. Um, I think that – and I don't know. There may be research that contradicts me here or there may be some anecdotal evidence that contradicts me here. But based on what I know about the aviation industry and their their, the way they approach security and safety – specifically human safety when flying on planes i think that they would listen up i think that if you they have i I believe they have systems in place for whistleblowers when it comes to manufacturing and maintenance of the planes i mean they have a they have a channel in place for a person who repairs an engine to say like we're not doing these engine repairs right and it's totally unsafe and i would say that that same channel could be used by a security researcher
4: and I, I mean, it'd be uh, interesting to know if that channel is available yeah. for security research. It, I mean, I know of the of the new bug bounty program that they put out right away. Yeah, but, but obviously, it was yeah. There's bullshit nothing all too. Yeah. Well, I mean,
3: there's nothing neither of us can know what the airline how would they have, have approached it if we were if we were the person who found the flaw and we did it responsibly, would they re- respond in an effective way? We d- we can't say. I
2: guess the thing also, how do you pen test a plane? Well, you just like say, if I,
4: I you know, if I was United, I was the CEO of United, I would have con. Well, it's also Boeing or whatever. Yeah. But well, Boeing already had him on their radar and so did uh, the FAA maybe, but I know United didn't. Somehow he got on United's not no fly list, but he might be now, but you know, radar to watch his tweets or whatever. But instead of putting that person that's doing all the research on your, hey, let's watch this person make sure they don't do anything malicious. Why aren't you working with them directly so they don't be? They're not doing this stuff on a commuter flight with people in yeah. tow. And why can't
3: you say, okay, we we're good. We've already pen tested this plane. We know we're good. Yeah, because we already- <laughs> have a
4: plane to look at.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, how do you pen test a plane? The same Give way you pen test anything difficult. You d- you develop a a test and you develop an attack scenario and you go through with it and then you evaluate the you know, same way that you test well, anything. Like
2: if you're a security researcher, like you don't just have a plane in your lab that no. you can test this on. No, that's
3: very true. However, I think another, another point that I want to make is despite what has happened being good or bad, there is still somewhat of an issue with the overall culture of these stunt hacks. And what I'm saying is what happened with United or what happened with these airlines, regardless of that, there is a problem when it's more when attackers or hackers think it's more beneficial for them to just announce these things on Twitter than it is for them to work with the people who should th- they should be working with. If you read the article on Carnal Ownage, essentially, he talks about I've been at, you know, I've been at conference private parties for 10 years. And what I think is that people are more concerned with they like the hype these stunt hackers or whatever you want to call them they love the hype they don't care so much about actually getting the vulnerabilities fixed they just want to ride the media hype they want to be interviewed on these news channels they want to they want to make a name for themselves and they prioritize that over everything else including responsible disclosure to the manufacturers the vendors and that's i think that there's more of a problem with that culture of sensationalist stunt hacking kind of stuff than there is with the actual mechanisms that have been put in place by these manufacturers and
2: that is kind of part of the culture of this industry oh it is oh yeah
3: it is but there's a healthy way to do it and there's an unhealthy way to do it and i think that right now with media buying with media presence is unprecedented as far as security goes it's never been this much and the overall cultural awareness is higher than it's ever been we we could be going in a dangerous direction because now companies like united may react negatively if someone were to approach them and and say or even if they didn't approach them but maybe i mean obviously i can never say exactly how united reacts but we're portraying in these stunt hacking scenarios you're portraying as a stunt hacker you're portraying yourself as an enemy of these companies an enemy of these people who design these systems that should be pen tested or... or and at or,
4: that point, they may not trust you enough exactly. to reach out to you.
3: And a lot of work by a lot of people has gone into ensuring that there is a an effective and trustworthy channel for potential attackers to use to disclose these issues in a responsible way. And when, when stunt hackers announce this information, they're taking away from a lot of hard work by a lot of security researchers. And they should consider that before they, I'm sure it's real cool to say, I hacked this plane, bro. I'm super cool. Like, I'm sure that makes you feel fantastic, but I bet it would feel better to, you know, to actually disclose these things and have them fixed and know that like people are safe because of your work. I think that would be much more rewarding than just saying hashtag hacked on Twitter and posting a picture of, you know, the plane's data logger, whatever it is you're doing. But the idea is you don't want to take away from all that. You don't want to change the the way that hackers are perceived to be negative. There's already a lot of negative press on hackers and you're not helping. You're making it worse. That's my main beef with it. And I think that's a lot of other quote unquote security researchers not that I'm even a security researcher, I'm a pen tester, I'm a white hat, you know, people pay me and all that crap. And I don't, ha- I don't, I'm, I don't understand the culture of security research. So, uh, or, you know, independent security research, but I think that you don't, you don't want to take away from that work that people have done. And I think that's what you're risking when you do those kinds of actions. So that's my opinion.
1: So just so we can uh, wrap this up, it seems like the two overall perspectives of whether airplane hackers are good or bad is first that, as Corey is saying, airplane hackers are actively hurting the information security research industry, you know, with the the stunt hacks and basically doing these things through untrustworthy methods. And the other is that, you know, hacking a plane is proving a point that it's important for industries like the airplane industry and whatever goes along with that, the FAA, to care and pen test and do whatever is necessary to make sure their plane can't be hacked or whatever system it is. Is that is that making your point? That sounds clear? like a good summary. Amanda, is that Yeah, okay? definitely. And if you're listening in and you have an opinion, talk to us and tell us what you think. And that's it. So thanks. Thanks for, for listening. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. And we'll make sure Bill's back next time. Bye.